Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the unsuccessful effort by Turkey's Erdogan to revive the grain deal for Russia and Ukraine to resume exports of much-needed food to Africa and other states and get an update on the war as Ukraine appears to be breaking through Russian defences in the south. Joining us is Christopher Miller, the Ukraine correspondent for the Financial Times, who was previously the lead correspondent in Ukraine for BuzzFeed News and Politico. He has been covering the current conflict since the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014, and prior to that was a Peace Corps volunteer in Bakhmut, a city now destroyed. The winner of the Missouri Honor Medal for Distinguished Service in Journalism, his new book just out is The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. Then we'll examine the leaked intelligence that Putin plans to meet with North Korea's Kim Jong-un in Vladivostok soon to get ammunition and weapons for his war against Ukraine in exchange for advanced weapons and nuclear and submarine technology Kim wants, as well as food his country desperately needs. Joining us is Sumi Terry, a former senior CIA analyst, director for Japan and Korea Affairs on the National Security Council, and Deputy National Intelligence Officer for East Asia at the National Intelligence Council. She's also the producer of a new film, Beyond Utopia, about North Korean defectors, which will be in theatres in October. Then finally we will speak with Jacob Halbrun, a senior editor at the National Interest and non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Centre, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons, Previously, he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor at the New Republic, and we'll discuss his article at The Atlantic, The Emptiness of Ramaswamy's Doctrine, and how the rising Republican star is angling to be Trump's running mate or Secretary of State. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Christopher Miller, who is the Ukraine correspondent with the Financial Times, and prior to that he was the lead correspondent in Ukraine for BuzzFeed News and Politico, and he's been covering the current conflict. And before that, he spent five years as a correspondent with Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty in Kiev. And his coverage of Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014 was the Missouri Honor Medal winner for Distinguished Service in Journalism. And his new book just out is The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christopher Miller. It's great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And when you say the war came to us, you were with the Peace Corps in Bakhmut, were you not? And is that what you're referring to? Because the war certainly came to Bakhmut. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I meant I meant us in uh, on many levels. I, I did serve as a, as a U.S. Peace Corps volunteer in the city of Bakhmut, uh, back when it was still called Artyomovsk. Um, it's it's Soviet given name um, between 2010 uh, through 2012, before I moved to Kiev and and got back into journalism and became a foreign correspondent based in Kiev. But I, I lived in that city for for two years. It was a very different time. Obviously, it was a you know a city of seventy thousand people that was uh, you know quiet, um, sort of off the beaten path. Certainly, not a place that uh, all of the world knew about, and and certainly wasn't um, plastered across front pages uh, you know with with datelines from from the place at all. Um, I made some good friends there. I, I, I certainly learned a lot about Ukraine and the people and the culture and, you know, built relationships that um, helped me over the many years that I lived and worked in Ukraine and I'm still still living and working there and 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 really helped form the basis for my understanding of the country and its people. So when I say us in, in the title of the book, I mean not only myself, who was there when 
um, the Maidan revolution happened, when the first invasion uh, by Russia happened in 2014, and this full-scale invasion in 2022. But the people who I got to know, my, my close friends, um, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, sort of an, an extended um, family of sorts, as well as the millions of Ukrainians who uh, live in the country and, um, you know, did not um, want this to happen and, and, and most, you know, who believe, you know, this would not happen. And so, you know, the us is, um, you know, me, my group of friends, uh, Ukrainians, but I also think that us is is we in the West, too, who, you know, I think saw clues over the last decade or two that, Russia and Vladimir Putin in particular had an imperialist vision um, and, and we sort of uh, dropped the ball, I think, in, in many ways and, and didn't um, take a proactive approach to uh, or response to rather the Russian invasion of Georgia, for example, um, and, and the first invasion of Ukraine in 2014. So that's where the, the, the us came from. And I really wanted to have a title also that I that I thought you know, people would read and immediately feel a connection to. But critics of the war in the West and in Europe that take the Russian position, it's certainly not a majority, they, of course, feel the opposite of what you just said, that we didn't take notice of Russia's imperial plans. And, of course, the Soviet Union was an imperial project as well. But as you look at what's happened with the BRICS conference and with the Global South, it seems that much of the global south does not see Russia and its predecessor, the Soviet Union, as an imperial colonial power. And whereas they do see the U.S., particularly from the failed wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, as being an imperialist power. So what do you make of that? Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, certainly... Certainly, there is some skepticism in the global south. Um, you know, I'll use uh, sev uh, several African countries in particular as an example because um, it's 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 these countries that the uh, administration of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has um, really been trying to um, uh, reach out to. Um, he, he's invited several African leaders to Kiev to talk to them. Um, you know, to sort of reshape their 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 vision of of Ukraine and this war and. Uh, and Russia, um, you know, this is obviously a place that's deeply skeptical of U.S. involvement um, kind of uh, war. Um, but, you know, I think that the Ukrainians actually have done a fairly good job and they're continuing to really put a lot of effort in, you know, reshaping that 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 vision from the global south, um, you know, toward the U.S., um, you know, one thing in particular, I had an interesting conversation actually with um, an African representative who, who was passing through Ukraine was is is that you know they use um they they use uh conflicts in the middle east as an example of of the united states coming in and sort of mucking things up um but but here you know the, the us is not is not directly involved through you know uh military intervention uh, we don't have boots on the ground in ukraine this is a war that the ukrainians are fighting um and and we had a conversation also in which you know it's trying to describe the the imperialism that um, uh, you know, many of these people in the global south are wary of when it comes to the United States in the context of essentially what what Russia is trying to do with Ukraine in and even subjugating the country. And, you know, I think that's part of Ukraine's message. And it does seem to some extent to be coming across. You know, we we do see, um, um, you know, you mentioned the BRICS summit. Um, leaders in the global south still meeting with with Russian representatives, um, but but they're not providing as much, nearly as much support as uh, Vladimir Putin um, would hope to to get from them um, in, to continue prosecuting his invasion of Ukraine. And of course, Putin met with Erdogan, the Turkish leader, over the weekend in Sochi, and right. uh, they tr tried to work out a grain deal. And uh, of course, Putin is destroying the Ukrainian grain silos and docks. At the same time, Putin is asking for the U.S. and the West to lift any sanctions against Russian exports and promising to give grain away free. So I'm not sure that it's going to he's going to be able to sell that, is he? You know, I'm I'm not sure. I think, you know, the, the Ukraine, I don't see I mean, I'll speak from the Ukrainian perspective. Right. This is what I know particularly well. And, and I've had several in-depth conversations with with the Zelensky administration on this. You know, their position is that, you know, this was a this was a deal that um, Russia that Russia came to the table and brokered 
um, and then broke. Um, and, and they're the ones who, who left this deal, right? The, the Ukrainians want this grain to leave. Um, you know, they are doing everything they can in their power to, to uh, you know, make sure that there is some kind of deal. But they're not going to um, concede or make large concessions to Russia um, in order for this deal to work. They've actually managed... Uh, just in the last um, uh, few weeks um, since Russia broke this deal to uh, bring in some ships um, and, and allow them to to leave uh, through a corridor that is protected by them and, and sort of from a distance, um, NATO ships in the Black Sea as well. Yeah, they're going through the 12-mile limit off the shores of Romania and Bulgaria. That's right. Um, I actually think that, you know, Russia's, Putin's, you know, Putin's move here to to try to um, uh, get more concessions only, uh, I, I, I think, you know, it exposes his weak position. You know, he he has seen um, energy exports increase, I think, at the expense of um, the, the Ukrainians, um, you know, uh, being unable to um, export their grain here. Um, but, you know, there, there are um, exports that he's unable to uh, get out of the country. And this is a way really... Um, to try, obviously, to uh, to increase that um, potential, and and you know, I think this this desperate you know move to to sort of try to blackmail the West through moving out of backing out of this deal is 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 something that exposes that weakness. Right, and today Russia and with the help of Saudi Arabia just uh, jacked up the price of oil by cutting production, so they'll be making more money. But given this David and Goliath struggle. My understanding is, and you obviously know the Ukrainian people well, is that they are determined to kick the Russians out of their country, and they're obviously suffering a lot of casualties. But it seems to me that across the board, the entire country is just furious and riled up and ready to fight to the bitter end. Is that an accurate description? Absolutely. You know, every Ukrainian in the country sees this as an existential fight. It is nothing less than a fight you know, for, for their survival. Uh, for the country's survival, um, there is now a very popular axiom, uh, you know, across Ukraine, and and that's even um, spilled over into the West now. That you know, if if Russia stops fighting, the war will end. If Ukraine stops fighting, there will be no Ukraine. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I, that's that is 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 really the basis um, uh, of 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 Ukraine's defense, right? We are going to continue fighting as long as it takes to push Russian forces, uh, you know, beyond. Um, our territorial boundaries. They have no aspirations of taking any Russian territory. They only want what is theirs. Um, you know, they want to see the country's territorial integrity and sovereignty restored to the boundaries of 1991 after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So that would also include the Black Sea Peninsula of Crimea. And, you know, there's this big question hanging over um, the war right now that is, you know, how how far uh, into the future is the West going to continue to back Ukraine um, in in its in its fight to recapture territory, and it's it's clear that Ukraine relies greatly, um, not yet completely, but but certainly greatly on the West uh, to continue defending its country and, and fighting its counteroffensive, uh, you know, and without that support from the West, it's going to have an extremely difficult time doing it. Nevertheless, without it, it will not stop fighting because again, this is. This is a fight for survival, and they'll do whatever it takes, um, you know, to ensure, uh, you know, they're they're here tomorrow and the next day and the many many years and decades to come. But when you talk about Western aid, it brings up a question that I've been trying to explore, and a friend of mine, a former CIA officer, has been working with Budanov, the head of mm-hmm. Ukrainian military intelligence, and for the longest time we're going we're talking about going back a year. On the Ukrainian side, there have been complaints about the quantity and quality of weapons being sent. And it's pretty clear that the West, particularly the U.S. and NATO, uh, set these red lines and say you can't have this missile, you can't have these tanks, you can't have these aircraft. And then they, after several months, then they turn around and say, oh, now you can have them. And all this has done uh, is delay and delay and delay, and stuff has dribbled in and now that has given the Russians an enormous amount of time to prepare the defenses, uh, knowing that their counteroffensive is coming once they get trained up on the, the Western weapons. And now, of course, the Ukrainians are taking heavy casualties as a result. This is not a way to win a war. And it's led me to question, does the United States government really want the Ukrainians to win this war against Russian aggression? 
Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, I, 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 there, there's certainly uh, there, there's certainly frustration in Kiev, and there has been since since this full scale war began. I, I, I can recall a conversation with Dmitry Kaleba, the, the foreign minister of Ukraine, who said um, exactly what you said. You know, um, in expressing his frustration about why the uh, weaponry and, and ammunition they're getting from the West comes so slowly. He said, you know, we, we, we now know we have to ask three times. The first time they're going to say no. The second time they're going to say maybe. It's going to be on the third time that they say yes. But at that point, you know, we're going to be at a different stage of the war. And the things that we had asked for that we believed would have put us in a better position at the time are now late. And, you know, we're having to adjust. Um, Obviously, people like him, uh, President Zelensky, the soldiers on the ground, um, ordinary citizens would love to see a lot more, a lot faster. And I do think they're right in that if they would have been given uh, much of what they have been given now over the course of the last 18, 19 months sooner, I think this could have been a very different uh, war. And, and you know, we saw what the Ukrainians were able to do with much less in the first weeks of the invasion when Russian forces were bearing down on Kiev and it looked like Kiev might fall in a matter of weeks, or at least that's what was um, uh, predicted by, by Western intelligence and, and many analysts. Um, and with very little, they managed to beat back what was supposed to be the second most powerful country in the world. So I, you know, I, and I've seen, you know, soldiers um, on the front lines who I've known for years, not only, you know, this, this last year and a half, do incredible things with very little. Um, the Ukrainians are in, in incredibly clever. Um, they're so good at really utilizing whatever it is they have. I can I can only imagine that with you know uh, more extensive training, uh, with many of the um, uh, weaponry that they've they've asked for arriving sooner, that they would have been capable of uh, you know possibly pushing Russia back much further um, than the the front line that we see uh, now in the southeast of the country. Well, it is puzzling, and I wonder what's going on with uh, Blinken and Sullivan at the highest levels of the advice that President Biden gets, because there's no question that Putin's best play, given that the war has gone badly for him, and he's desperate now, he's going to meet with the North Koreans trying to get Cold War, Korean War <laughs> weapons. Uh, he's running out of artillery, he's even running out of black powder, etc. So there's a certain desperation on his side. And Putin, clearly, his best play is to have Trump come back into the White House. So from that point of view, I don't understand why Biden doesn't see this. You say it's an existential struggle for the Ukrainians. It would seem to me to be an existential struggle for Biden and the Democrats, unless they really want Ukraine to win. And there's something about Sullivan and Blinken that makes me wonder whether they have some deal with the Russians and, you know, that we got to constrain the Ukrainians, they can't strike your territory. I don't understand what it is because it's an asymmetrical war. The Russians are free to destroy Ukraine and its cities, its hospitals, its, its schools, its infrastructure. And the Ukrainians can't strike back except they're ingeniously figuring out ways to do it with, with homemade drones, etc. So that's a question I have. It may not be in your wheelhouse so much, but... Did, did, no, I think we agree. Yeah, did, yeah, I, I think we agree. You know, I, I'm, I'm equally as frustrated on, on, that, on that part, you know, and, I, and I, I hear the frustrations of Ukrainians who are fighting and dying and sacrificing uh, on a daily basis. And, you know, I wonder um, what it is that the West is afraid of. I, I don't think it's only the White House. I think there are people in Europe as well. Um, but, but, you know, the, it's, it's, it's obvious that the United States is, is leading the... Uh, support for Ukraine in this war. And, you know, for some reason, there really does seem to be a fear of a Russia, or of a of a Ukrainian victory. Um, you know, and I wonder if that fear is that, you know, a Ukrainian military victory of, of some of some sort, and there could be various ways in which that would happen, um, you know, would embolden uh, Russia to make or Vladimir Putin rather to make you know, a decision to use possibly a, tact a tactical nuclear weapon or, or to carry out some, you know, other barbaric act, um, um, you know, in the same vein as the destruction of the Kohovka Dam um, this summer, um, you know, something of that sort, that it would lead to um, an escalation um, of, of a much greater um, uh, type or proportion 
that you know would be would be harder to control, and then there would be perhaps some some sort of, of of chaos. Whereas you know the the war that we're seeing now is something that um, to Washington might feel manageable. But if Putin, just in closing here, if Putin fired a tactical nuke, what would it do him? It has no military utility. It would make him even more of a prior. So it's hard to understand what the, uh, Sullivan and company are afraid of upsetting Putin. And, and if there's a coup against Putin, is there anybody in Russia that could be worse than Putin? It's a very I, good question. I mean, I think that's I think that's what people are afraid of, right? They're afraid of the, the Yevgeny Prigozhin type possibly seizing power and then um, you know, viewing viewing perhaps the devil that you know is better than the devil you don't, and mm. I wonder if if that's if that's what they're banking on here. Um, you know, but it does seem as 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 though you know at every turn Putin has escalated. You know, I remember it's you know it, it wasn't so long ago that um, we thought this was a, a tiny little uh, war in in eastern Ukraine in 2014, and then suddenly, um, you know, MH17, a civilian airline, was shot down. And then suddenly there was, you know, the regular Russian military in, in eastern Ukraine helping to route the Ukrainians and um, in, in Ilovaisk. And then, you know, over the years there were there were these escalations until we finally got to February 2022 where there was this huge explosion of, of, of violence and a full-scale invasion. And then almost, you know, every, every few months, um, you know, we've seen uh, further escalations. So... You know, I yeah, I I, I do wonder. Um, you know, I, I I I'm frustrated by the same things that you've you've uh, you, you've put out, and and um, you know, I think right now there's a lot more questions than there are clear answers. Certainly, as a journalist, I'm putting these questions to uh, to leaders in Kiev, to leaders in in Washington, uh, anyone who passes through who I can get time with, and certainly my colleagues at the FT are in their respective bureaus in Brussels and and Germany. Um, you know, I'll say one last thing, and I guess that's. That um, I, I, I've sensed, I've sensed, um, you know, a, a lot what you have in that there's there's certainly concern and you know how well Trump is doing in the polls that that um, you know really scares the Ukrainians who um, you know certainly remember 2019 and him trying to blackmail Zelensky into uh, opening uh, cases into into Joe Biden in Ukraine in exchange for um, you know providing lethal weaponry. And um, they they know that there's perhaps a, a timeline here in which they might see um, U.S. support um, seriously seriously rolled back. And so, you know, I think we're going to see um, sort of just casting this forward just a little bit here. I would, I would say we're probably going to see a major lobbying effort on Zelensky's part with the U.S. Um, and specifically the Republican Party in the coming months ahead of the elections and ahead of the debates, trying not to make Ukraine a political football, but to make sure that the message that, you know, you want to back Ukraine because uh, Ukraine is a winner, it can be a winner with your support, and that it's fighting for the same ideals and principles as Americans have fought for, right? Freedom and independence, and really trying to get that message across. Well, thank you for joining us, Christopher Miller. I know you're on your way to Ukraine, and um, stay safe, okay? Thank you very much. And again, I've been speaking with Christopher Miller, who is the Ukraine correspondent with the Financial Times. And prior to that, he was the lead correspondent in Ukraine for BuzzFeed News and for Politico, where he's been covering the current conflict in Ukraine. And before that, he spent five years as correspondent for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty in Kiev. His coverage of Russia's annexation of Crimea in 2014 uh, was the Missouri Honor Medal winner for distinguished service in journalism. And his new book just out is The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. We're going to take a brief station break back examining the leaked intelligence that Putin plans to meet with North Korea's Kim Jong-un in Vladivostok soon to get ammunition and weapons for his war against Ukraine in exchange for advanced weapons and nuclear and submarine technology Kim wants, as well as food his country desperately needs. Никакого завтра больше нет. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Sumi Terry, a former senior CIA analyst, the director of Japan and Korea and Affairs at the National Security Council and the deputy national intelligence officer for East Asia at the National Intelligence Council. She's also the producer of a new film about North Korean defectors, Beyond Utopia, and she's just back from the Telluride Film Festival. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sumi Terry. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, thanks for joining us, Sue. And what do you make of the planned trip to uh, Vladivostok of Kim Jong-un to meet with Putin? What I find interesting about it is that we know that the, there's been an unusual release of, of classified information, particularly in, in the build-up to the Ukraine war. Normally that stuff is kept secret, but a lot of stuff was put out there in the public domain to let Putin know that the U.S. knew what he was up to and perhaps trying to deter him from doing what he eventually did. And it seems that the same is true now with this declassification of obviously secret intercepts about uh, what Putin and Kim Jong-un are planning to meet relatively soon this month. So is this a continuation of that unusual shift in, I don't know whether it's to do with Ambassador Burns or the Biden administration, but normally stuff that's been kept secret is now being released. I agree. Well, first, this meeting makes sense, right, from Putin's perspective and from Kim Jong-un's perspective. Uh, Both Russia and North Korea need allies. They are isolated. Russia needs North Korean artillery, ammunition. North Korea needs Russian technology, economic aid. You know, um, so North Korea and Russia can strengthen each other. So it's kind of a return to Cold War traditional alliance that really serves strategic interests of both countries. Now, your point about U.S. leaking intelligence, yes, I think that is to pressure Kim Jong-un more than even Putin. I think it's to pressure Kim Jong-un not to provide ammunition to Russia. Um, This is basically the strategy also the U.S. government applied to China. You mentioned to Putin, but U.S. government also applied this to China. Uh, If you remember, it leaked intelligence last year and into early this year about China considering sending weapons to Russia. And U.S. government, the Biden administration, mounted a full court press threatening uh, additional sanctions and other repercussions for Chinese trade relations. And it did seem to have swayed at least the Chinese to back off from sending drones or heavy weaponry, um, although, of course, they supply uh, dual-use technology. So, yes, I do think the U.S. government probably thinks that this kind of exposure, uh, declassifying and leaking intelligence uh, can be helpful. And, you know, according to the White House, previous planned transfers of North Korean uh, artillery shells was stopped after U.S. government warned it. But in general, I I have to question whether this would work this time because North Korea is just going to be a lot less concerned uh, of what the U.S. or the West thinks uh, than I think even China. Um, And China is, of course, much more vulnerable because it is a major trading country. So I I still am not convinced that this is going to stop Kim from meeting with Putin. But I think Putin has changed, has he not, though? You get reports now from U.S. diplomats saying that their Russian counterparts are no longer acting like diplomats. They're just screaming and lecturing and bullying in the way that Xi Jinping's wolf warrior diplomacy has also changed the way that Chinese diplomats behave. And it seems that Putin, he believes that the war in Ukraine is a war against the United States, and he it's obviously not going badly for him. So my sense is that he's pretty unrestrained now. If whatever whatever they were restrained about prior to wanting to deal with North Korea, I think I think all bets are off, aren't they? Yes, I I think he's very unrestrained. I mean, he Russia is acting like a mafia state, and Putin is you know the at the top of that, right? He's, he's, it's really, it doesn't seem like a normal country um, the way it's acting. And I'm also concerned that similarly, North Korea is also acting unrestrained. So very much Kim Jong-un could call U.S. bluff and go for it and show defiance to the United States. So 
I'm not sure if Kim Jong-un or Putin would be dissuaded uh, with any kind of pressure. They're not acting normally. It's not like they were terribly a normal state. North Korea, even more so, uh, never really acted like a normal state. But I'm now concerned that they're absolutely unrestrained. But do you think that in any way Russia and certainly China don't mind having North Korea as a kind of wild card? I guess to some extent mutually assured destruction still works, hopefully, between the U.S. and Russia and the U.S. and China. But having this wild card of this nuclear power led by an unstable and incredibly mercurial leader who is unrestrained, is that an advantage that Russia and China can exploit? Yes, they will try to exploit it. But it's not like Xi Jinping will necessarily want completely wild North Korea, right? Because it doesn't quite serve China's interest um, because that means there's a trilateral exercises. We've already seen Biden inviting South Korean President Moon Jae-in and Prime Minister, Japanese Prime Minister Kishida. They had this very historic summit at Camp David. That's not good for China. Um, you know, there's anytime there's a trilateral cooperation between U.S. and key allies, that's not necessarily good for China. Um, but that said, will China pressure and sanction North Korea? No. I mean, we have seen last year when North Korea tested some 70 ballistic missiles, there was complete inaction at the United Nations Security Council. They couldn't even condemn North Korea's intercontinental ballistic, ballistic missile launch. However, in, with this particular situation, I do wonder what China thinks about it, because China is uneasy about the Russian war. Uh, it is not supplying Russia with weapons, although, again, it's providing dual-use technology. Will China support or oppose arms transfer from North Korea to Russia? Because this arrangement could also reduce North Korea's reliance on China as the sole supporter. And China likes to be in that position, right? Because you have more leverage against North Korea if you're the only patron left in the world. So it's a little bit interesting dynamic to, you know, a couple of different things to think about. Mm -hmm. So the meeting, we don't know actually when this is going to take place, but... North Korea celebrates its, the anniversary of its founding on September the 9th, so it would obviously be after that. And there's a Eastern Economic Forum scheduled in Vladivostok to run from September the 10th to the 13th. So is that the likely time that uh, Kim will show up? Yes, well, that was the plan. The question now is, because it's so exposed and everybody knows exactly when he will go, whether he will stick with this timeline. But I do think at some point he will meet with, uh, with Putin because just last month, North Koreans already sent a delegation to Russia in likely to prepare for the summit. Uh, we know that Russian defense minister visited North Korea and so on. And again, it makes sense um, from both of their perspective um, because they can help each other out, right? Right. Well, but it, it looks as if what North Korea is giving Russia is pretty old stuff, you know, grad missiles and even black powder, apparently, and artillery shells. But what's more concerning, surely, is what's the quid pro quo? What are the Russians giving Kim? Because Kim has got some leverage now, and I'm sure he would want, you know, technology to miniaturize nuclear weapons so that they could reach the United States, etc., so isn't that more f concerning, what is the Russians yes, are going to give to North Korea as opposed to what he's giving to Russia? Absolutely. Um, North Korea support will still be helpful at the margins just because this is a war of supply lines which, with each side trying to produce and replenish you know, more of its artillery ammunition. And North Korea has large stockpiles of munitions that could help Russia. Uh, but you point out, you know, to what extent is it degraded? In North Korea's artillery is going to be primitive. Uh, it's not like smart shells that can be guided by GPS. They're more old-fashioned artillery ammunition. But still, at the margins, it could be helpful to the Russians. Now, to your point, um, it is true that how much Russia would be willing to provide North Korea is more con concerning because what North Korea is looking for is advanced technologies 
related to its nuclear weapons and intercontinental ballistic missiles program. Um, you know, so that's that's very concerning to me. Um, that Kim Jong Un wants Russia's advanced technology for satellites, nuclear power submarines, and all of that. And of course. You know, that's very concerning. If no, if Russia ends up helping out with North Korea's missile program, building high-tech weapon systems, powerful long-range missiles, hypersonic ballistic missiles, spy satellite, nuclear power submarines, and all, all of that, which, which would, of course, increase North Korea's reliability of their missiles pro, missile program, their sophistication, and so on. So that is very concerning. You're, you're 100% right about that. So when the spokesperson for the National Security Council, Adrian Watson, says we urge the DPRK to cease its arms negotiations with Russia and abide by the public commitments that Pyongyang has made to not provide or sell arms to Russia. I mean, what public commitments are we talking about there? Well, they're talking about, you know, what well, North Korea has said in the past that they're not going to transfer, transfer weapons. But we cannot rely on North Korea's words for anything. I mean, you know, there's also many UNSC resolutions that North Korea is not supposed to do, you know, all of these things, but they are doing it. And we know that North Korea is also a serial proliferator. It has proliferated everything under the sun in the past. So you can talk about any kind of statements and quasi-agreements, or, but that's, you cannot count on that. Kim Jong-un will do whatever he wants to do. So this is concerning. You know, and as I just pointed out, in the past, North Korea has, you know, they, they're a proliferator and proliferator. And then what I'm really concerned about is that right now their economic situation in the North, it's, it's very dire. So beyond this, uh, you know, this kind of sophisticated system that the technology that North Korea wants North Korea desperately needs food aid. It needs, you know, cash. It, it, it needs a whole host of things. So that's what Kim Jong Un is looking for to to have this relationship back on track with Russia. So just in the last minute, I wanted to touch on the, the film that you just produced about North Korean defectors called Beyond Utopia, and it, it was just at the Telluride Film Festival where it was very highly praised. When is the public going to get to see it? Uh, in late October, we'll have a theatrical release in some 700 theaters around the United States. So mm-hmm. I'm very excited about that. Um, it will also be uh, streamed uh, in January, and everybody can watch it. But I hope that people will go and watch it. Uh, this is about, you know, we capture live defection of, you know, North Koreans fleeing. You know, we call it beyond utopia, right? It's, but um, it's, we, it did get incredible reception at Telluride. Uh, it did win audience award um, at Sundance and at Sydney Film Festival. So hope, please go check it out, uh, Beyond Utopia. Right, it's a documentary it, about North Koreans. And you've documented the entire journey from getting into China and all the way through China, down through Laos and Vietnam. I mean, it's an extraordinary. You had cameras embedded with them. I don't know how you, how you didn't get caught, but anyway. Um, we'll see the movie. <laughs> and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. And again, I've been speaking with Sumi Terry, who's a former CIA senior analyst, director of Japan and Korean Affairs at the National Security Council and deputy national intelligence officer for East Asia at the National Intelligence Council. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the emptiness of the Ramaswamy doctrine and how the rising Republican star is angling to be Trump's running mate or Secretary of State. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jacob Halbrun, who's a senior editor at the National Interest, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons, 
Previously, he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor of the New Republic, and he has an article at The Atlantic, The Emptiness of Ramaswamy's Doctrine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jacob Harbron. Thanks, Ian. So today, uh, Ramaswamy came up empty and uh, asked by the press about whether or not Putin is a uh, war criminal, and he refused to answer or didn't want to answer it. So, you know, Nikki Haley obviously put him on the spot in that last and first debate of the Republican presidential hopefuls. So he's under some extra scrutiny as a result of Nikki Haley basically saying he has no foreign policy experience. So he's gone ahead and written this article that you have dissected. So let's start with the article. What, what, what's he trying to achieve here? Ramaswamy was trying to show that he has serious foreign policy bona fides, partly by invoking, of all people, Richard M. Nixon as his lodestar. He says that he wants to return to the realist foreign policy that was practiced by Nixon and Kissinger, but he fundamentally distorts their record to support his own extravagant foreign policy ideas. Namely, he wants to abandon Taiwan by 2028, and perhaps even worse, he would immediately sever American aid to Ukraine, fly to Moscow, and appease Putin. So that is Donald Trump's foreign policy, isn't it? I think this is a version of Donald Trump's foreign policy in extremis. Trump, in his first term at least, wasn't able to abandon NATO, and he wasn't able to sell out Ukraine. Now, he might well in a second term, but Ramaswamy, in his article, has two goals. One goal is if by some fluke Trump has to drop out of the Republican primary, Ramaswamy would then be the heir apparent to the mega base. The second is that he is auditioning to become Trump's secretary of state. So you don't think he's auditioning to become the vice president? It's possible, but I think it's less likely than a cabinet position. I think as secretary of state, Ramaswamy has already shown that he'll do whatever Trump would want. Rhetorically, even Trump has said that Ramaswamy sometimes goes too far in airing his views. But Trump did say that he likes him, and he did consider him as a possibility for vice president. Particularly, he likes him particularly because he says nice things about him, which is <laughs> all you have to do to get on his good side, right, is to say he's a genius and walks on water. That's exactly right. And Ramaswamy has outflanked Ron DeSantis. If you think about it purely in terms of political strategy, in a Republican primary, he's made the calculation to go all in. If you remember, DeSantis flirted with selling out Ukraine, but then backpedaled. Ramaswamy is shrewd enough to know you've got to, you've got to go all the way. So he is positioning himself as either Trump's heir apparent or as his lackey. Hmm. Well... Earlier on today's program, we were talking to a reporter who spent a lot of time in Ukraine, and we're questioning, we were questioning whether or not the United States is selling out Ukraine by n not supporting them sufficiently, and it's a puzzlement to my mind why Biden doesn't recognize that Putin's best play is to get Trump re-elected, and he'll probably do everything he can to help him in 2024, so... That's a puzzlement in itself. But I guess the warning in your article is that the more that Ramaswamy and Trump and other Republicans talk about selling out Ukraine and helping Putin, the more it sort of becomes Republican dogma, right? That's right. If you look at the polls, the support among Republicans for assisting Ukraine, both militarily and financially, is ebbing. And that is a dangerous phenomenon if you think that Ukraine 
is the only barrier between Western Europe and a revanchist Russia, like I do. Well, it's, I guess it depends upon, largely upon whether Ukraine can achieve some kind of a breakthrough in its counteroffensive. And because we've dribbled weapons and kept denying them stuff that they ask for forever, and stuff has come so late that it's given the Russians plenty of time to prepare. You know, now we're criticizing the offensive, saying they're not doing well enough. And as you know, Jacob, the American people like to back a winner. So if Ukraine doesn't win, I think it could be very problematic for Ukraine. That's true, but I have not lost confidence. The Ukrainians have already broken past the first line of Russian defenses. And look, it was a tough slog getting through those minefields. The Ukrainians seem more optimistic that they'll be able to make more rapid progress. And so I'm not throwing in the towel here. I think there are too many... There's too much doom and gloom in Washington about this. Uh, but I do agree with you that Biden's reelection hinges in part on a Ukrainian victory. He has to be seen as having backed a country that can win and is having made the right choice, because there will be a chorus of Republicans who argue that he has simply squandered American resources in supporting Zelensky and Ukraine and that the better option is simply to bug out and cut a deal with, with Putin. It is telling also that Ramaswamy is unwilling, as you noted, to, de to, to call Putin a war criminal, which is what he is. Right. Well, you think he might be auditioning for Secretary of State, which <laughs> talk about a disastrous choice. But he's also, I think, auditioning to be vice president. And that's would raise an interesting question. If he becomes, if he replaces DeSantis, which I think is in the process of doing, because DeSantis is just sort of imploding, how's he going to run a campaign? He can't criticize his hero. So he'd be like the Me Too chorus, won't he? Yes, I don't think that he seriously expects to defeat Trump. He's made a calculation, which turns out to be a shrewd one, that by, by appealing to the Make America Great base, he can align himself with Trump and become his potential successor, either as vice president or as secretary of state. He would be the one that has most explicitly embraced the Trump doctrine. Well, I, for the life of me, don't understand how anybody sees any appeal in him because the, the the time that he was on the stage, which is basically all that I've noticed, I haven't followed his stump speeches in Iowa, but I did watch the debate and I found him incredibly irritating. Is there anybody else feels that way? Well, at bottom, it's foreign policy gibberish. And mm -hmm. I think that it is becoming increasingly apparent that, like Trump, he is simply a snake oil salesman peddling bogus foreign policy prescriptions that he dubs a doctrine kind. What he is actually espousing is something that Richard Nixon, who he calls his hero, would never have endorsed, namely isolationism. All of this talk about defending American national interests and cutting deals with Putin is simply a smokescreen for isolationism, for the idea that you can have a fortress America that can pull up the drawbridge and essentially have nothing to do with the rest of the world. He calls for a return to the Monroe Doctrine as well. He wants to run riot in our sphere of influence with the military. And the Latin American and Central American countries are very nervous about what that implies. I think Ramaswamy is close to an American fascist. So you think he's a <laughs> he's joining the ranks, right? You've got Trump, the fascist in chief. You've got DeSantis, I think, who's a genuine fascist. Uh, and now you've got this guy. I, my impression of him is Ramaswamy will say or do anything. He just seems to have unbridled ambition. That's exactly right. And... 
in the context of the Republican Party, which he's discerned is an empty shell, he is peddling the Trump line that has increasingly won adherence in the party. You know, you have a rump faction of the party elders, Mitch McConnell and others, Mike Pence, who still support Ukraine, who still support an activist foreign policy. They tend to be elderly and do not have a real constituency in the GOP. Well, there's no question that uh, McConnell tends to be elderly uh, and freezing on camera doesn't help him. One of the more alarming statistics I just saw, Jacob, is that there was a poll about whether or not uh, Biden is too old to run and Trump is too old to run, and Biden's 80 and Trump is 77. He's only three years behind him. Yet 76% of Americans think Biden is too old, and only 46% since Trump is too old. That's because Trump compensates with the kind of bravado that Biden is unable to muster. Right, but I think if you if you really looked at the health of those two men, this Big Mac-eating blob, uh, I don't think he's a healthy man. He's certainly not mentally healthy. No, no. well, no. I mean, he's, he's a lunatic. Uh, but for, for whatever reason, a substantial chunk of the American public seems to regard Trump not simply as a politician, but as the messiah. Mm. Well, that appears to be the case. It's often said that uh, the GOP has become the Trump cult, and he uh, does and, have a cult following, it seems. And Ramaswamy fits right in there. I mean, the guy, he too has these megalomaniac tendencies. If you listen to the way he talks about himself, the chutzpah, the confidence, the sweeping assertions, the uh, the doctrine that is divorced from reality, there's nothing realist about it. In fact, he would injure, not promote American power and interests both at home and abroad. Ramaswamy, no less than Trump, is a recipe for utter chaos and disaster. Right, but again, Trump obviously worked on the stump, and he did. And unfortunately, he has the same advantage he had in 2016, which is a crowded field. And, you know, he's a reality TV star, so he knew TV, and he was able to knock everybody off the island in what, turning in the Republican presidential debate into a reality TV show. And I guess to some extent, Ramaswamy has, has learned from that. But the more the Republican voters see Trump, the more they like him, and the more that he's indicted, the more they like him. But I'm not sure, Jacob, that the more you see Ramaswamy, the more you're going to like him. Because as I say, my initial response was, you know, this guy is just annoying. Well, it's a, the remarkable thing is that he's been as successful as he has. I mean, he has established himself as a credible candidate. Uh, he has tapped into the Republican base, and he has caught the eye of Trump. So in one form or another, he's going to be with us over the next year. He would definitely have a high-profile speaking spot at the Republican convention, whether or not Trump chose him to become vice president. So, I mean, this man has essentially emerged from nowhere. Right, but he's he's backed by Peter Thiel, who's obviously backed by J.D. Vance, and I think he went to, he was a a Yale Law School friend of uh, J.D. Vance's, wasn't he, Ramaswamy? Yes, they're quite close. Right. And he's a, um, J.D. Vance is clearly a protege of of Thiel, and also, apparently, Ramaswamy is a networker who's joined the Leonard Leo network, and Leonard Leo has, what, a couple of billion dollars to spend. Yes, which is, again, why I don't think Ramaswamy is going away. I think he's a fairly gifted and glib public speaker. Uh, whether he just ends up being a talking head is an open question. Uh, I mean, there's no guarantee that Trump is going to win the election. I think he's going to lose if he runs against Biden. But Ramaswamy is one of these creatures that has emerged in the Republican ecosphere. And he's definitely shown that there is a future 
for the Make America Great wing of the Republican Party. It is not going away, even if Trump loses this election. So why do you think, then, Trump is going to lose? Because that's certainly music to my ears, because I have a terrible fear that he could win in spite of... And you saw what happened on that debate stage. They were asked about whether they'd support Trump even though he was in jail. And they all shot their hands up with the exception of of Christie and uh, Governor H. Hutchinson. Yeah, they're all cowering before Trump. They just want him to go away, which he won't do. I do think that Biden is underestimated as a politician. I think his focus on the economy is smart. And I think if you look at the Wisconsin political scene, which is moving towards the Democrats, they control the Supreme Court now. They have good voter turnout there. I'm skeptical that Trump is going to win, is in a position to win Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, or even Michigan, where Gretchen Whitmer is governor. The abortion issue has also put wind into the sails of the Democrats. It's a huge gift from the Supreme Court to the electoral fortunes of the Democrats. All of this is, of course, predicated that there's no financial disaster or and that Biden's health remains good. So far, there seems to be no reason for concern. Well, the states that you just mentioned, uh, the states that Trump won in 2016 by a hair, and in 2020, Biden only won those states that determined the Electoral College victory. He only won those states by 44,000 votes, even though he was 8 million votes ahead in the popular vote. So that's what makes it so close, isn't it? I mean, Trump is not running for president of the United States to get the votes of the majority. He's running, as he did in 2016 and 2020, he's running to win the Electoral College. That's correct, and he will fight hard. One thing that the press corps does not seem to have grasped is that there will likely be no Republican primary. He is seen in the eyes of the Republicans as the president. They don't a lot of them don't believe that he ever lost the election. So he's not going to have to fight any harder than Joe Biden did to win the Republican primary. The primary, in essence, already appears to be over. But right. it, will, he... it will be a closely contested general election, but I still think the Democrats have the edge. Also, they're not going to under—no one's underestimating Trump again, ever, the way Hillary Clinton did in 2016. That was a huge blunder on her part. She neglected the Midwest. She never thought Trump had a chance to win. He has lost that advantage. He is not a sleeper candidate anymore. Everyone knows who he is, what his flaws are, and how he can be defeated. Biden did it once, and I bet you he does it again. Well, Jacob Harbin, I thank you very much for joining us here today and to many listeners, offering a very optimistic scenario. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Jacob Halbrun, who's a senior editor at the National Interest, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, a columnist for The Spectator, and the author of They Knew They Were Right, The Rise of the Neocons. And previously, he was an editorial writer for the Los Angeles Times and a senior editor of The New Republic. And he has an article at The Atlantic, The Emptiness of Ramaswamy's Doctrine. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.